Well, we had some um, seasonal topics, if you will, the last month or so. But we are returning to our study of the book of Genesis, the opening chapters, really, of Genesis. As we're doing a sort of biblical, theological look into uh, many different themes and ideas that we see here in the opening pages of the Bible. And as we've seen, we've traced those themes, we've begun to at least trace those themes from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation, seeing that much of what begins in creation, even pre-fall, finds its state, its glorious redeemed state, in the state of glory. And really, the new creation is a, is a, is a, a better version of that Edenic paradise where man first dwelt in the presence of God. It's been a while, so I just want to refresh where we've been. We've seen that creation is uh, ultimately a display, a theater for divine glory. It is an opportunity for God to, to make himself known and display his glorious person and works. We've seen that creation was an act of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, working in perfect harmony there in the openings of, the, uh, of time in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we've seen that while it is a work of the triune God, there seems to be a Christocentric focus. There are types of the second Adam built into the Genesis, the creation narrative. We saw Adam is a type of Christ, marriage a type of the gospel, the offering, the bloodshed of the animal to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve being a type or a shadow of the sacrifice of Christ. We then... We're uh, considering this idea that the Garden of Eden was a, was a temple, the, the first temple on the earth, that, that God had made this special holy place where a holy people could dwell in the presence of a holy God. And God placed them there in that place. They communed with their Lord, but of course that didn't last long. And because of sin, Adam and Eve were exiled out of the garden and the rest of the Bible, we, we trace this idea that through the work of redemption, God is restoring that temple presence to his people. The tabernacle, and then in the temple, and then Christ comes as a man tabernacling among us. And then now we are li a living temple being built and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. And eventually we will dwell again in the glorious presence of God where the whole earth will be his temple. There will be no need for a building because he will be there in our midst. And we saw our brother Paul helped us to see this war that takes place between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Genesis 3, there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and the curse. And throughout the Bible, we see that serpentine enemies wage war against the people of God, and Christ comes to destroy the works of the devil, and ultimately that serpent and all of his minions will be cast forever into the lake of fire. And all God's people said, Amen indeed. Today we're going to begin to think about man in relation to creation. Um, I want to begin today with thinking about man's identity, who we are, and in the coming weeks, we'll, we'll look at man's calling or what we are called to do here in the opening creation account. We'll look at five creation mandates. We will see marriage, procreation, um, work, the dominion mandate, and the Sabbath. All of these are founded in the creation account. And 
we'll, we'll, we'll take time with each of those. But today we want to look at the image of God. That's the subject before us today, the image of God in man. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis 1, Genesis chapter 1, and we'll look at a few passages to, uh, here. We're going to begin in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. So this is God's word for his church today. Then God said, Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then chapter 2, verse 7, then the Lord God formed man, excuse me, the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And then verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is, this at last is bone of my bones flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray, church. Father in heaven, we, we come to an important text, we believe today, that, that speaks of who we are. And so we pray, God, that um, as the week has been long and Maybe our sleep was, was not um, uninter- uninterrupted last night, or there's burdens on our hearts, and all of the things that we face as, as fallen individuals in a fallen world. We ask and pray in faith that all of these could be set aside, Lord. That all of these could be, um, for a time, mortified, if you will, and that you would give us, as a body, coming together as one people, uh, the ability to set our hearts and minds upon, upon this word, upon this text, um, we pray, God, for the children, that you would help them to, to hear and be engaged and to understand in their way, Lord. Um, we thank you that they're here with us to hear the word and to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and to worship with uh, the family of God. Um, we thank you for Christ, and we pray that he might be revealed to us this hour, Lord. Help us, minister to us. Give me grace, please, to speak as I ought. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Who am I? What is my purpose? These are questions that people have asked throughout 
the history of, of, of humans. And as we look at various cultures or societies or ancient religions or scientific theories, we will see a myriad of answers trying to answer the question of man's identity, of ultimately who we are, what is our purpose, where do I come from, what, what am I? In our day, we've become more and more infatuated with this idea of, of identity, and it seems that it's sort of part of the process of figuring out what it means to be a person and an adult as a young person is sort of wrestling with who they are, you know, in our modern context, we've been discipled with the media. We've been discipled with Disney movies that have told us now for decades that a young person has to find themselves, right? We have to, we have to find out what our identity is. We have to go on a search for it. And certainly, as we've been told, and, and, and you might say, oh, come on, Disney. Go watch a Disney movie, and then watch another one, and watch another one. And every single story is your parents are antiquated, the traditions of your fathers need to go, and you need to be something else. Run away, escape, be different. You define yourself. No one else can define who you are. I enjoy Disney movies, but this theme runs through every almost one. You don't have to be a mermaid. You can be a woman, and on and on. And so we've seen this idea of me defining my identity sort of come to roost today. We've seen the, the fullness of it with the gender confusion and all the rest of it, um, where our young people are being told they even define if they're a boy or a girl, a man or a woman. Or maybe I can even define that I'm not even a human being. I'm, I'm something else. Um, well, today we're going to have the answer. Right? Who are we? Because God's Word tells us very clear who we are, and what our purpose is. Now, maybe you've even wrestled with this, not on that far end of the spectrum there with some of the modern perversions, but maybe you've wrestled at times with, who really am I? What am I doing? My life seems mundane and, and repetitive, and what even is my purpose in this life? Well, God gives us answers. In the text, and today we'll begin with this question of who am I. My big idea, <clears throat> trying to sort of summarize where we're going today, is on the back of your handout. God created man in his royal image to be his kingly representative in this world, to rule and spread the worship of Yahweh to the ends of the earth. That's, that was the intention. Now, God knew what was coming, and it was part of his decree Nonetheless, this is the intention. So I want to say from the beginning, because I'll forget, that all that we're talking about today, we're focusing on Adam, pre-lapsarian Adam. That is pre-lapse, pre-fall. Before the fall, Adam in the state of innocence is what we're considering today as we think about the image of God. And Lord willing, next time we'll consider what the fall has done to man's image and how Christ, the image of God, has come and is redeeming and restoring that. But even as we look at man, as we zoom out maybe from the image of God and just think about the creation itself, of uh, the creation account, we see that man is the special creation of God. Man is unique and set apart in the creation account. We have chapter 1, and it gives us the six days of creation. And we see sort of a general overview of each of the six days. 
And then in chapter 2, Moses, the author, zooms in on the sixth day of creation and focuses on the creation of man, retelling that story with greater detail. And we notice something in that very first verse that we read. The text says there in verse 26 of chapter 1, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, even if we remove, hold off on the idea of the image of God, uh, we see that the, the pattern in the narrative has changed. You can read, you can see it there on the page. And God said, and God said, and God said, let there be lights, let the earth sprout vegetation. But when it comes to the creation of man, there is sort of a divine counsel there. There's a triune conversation, if you will, that is taking place within the persons of the Godhead. Let us make man. And so it seems that from the beginning, this creation of man is a special act of the triune God. It's sort of set as distinct from the rest of creation. We also see something unique, that, that in the creation of everything else, God speaks matter into existence. He speaks things into being. Let there be light. But as we read with man, God takes pre-existing materials. He takes the dust of the ground and he forms the man out of that dust. This seems to be unique. And, and, and that, that shows that we have a real a connection to the earth, to animals, to creatures. We are made of the same stuff, if you will, the same materials of this earth. But God took that form and he breathed a living soul into man. The text says that he breathed the breath of life and man became a living creature, or maybe better, a living being or a living person. This is unique from all the rest of creation, that man formed him out of the dust and breathed the breath of life into him. We also see, as we'll see, that man is set above all of the other creatures, all of the creation. He is to take dominion. He is to rule. Everything is under the man. We also see that, that man is the only creature that God reveals himself to. That man is the only creature that can know his creator, that, that has a true knowledge of God and can commune with his God, can worship his God, can offer to him praise. And as we saw when we considered Eden as a garden temple, God creates man and then he places him in the garden of Eden, in a special place for him to dwell in the presence of God. If we think about the geography of the earth at this time, there's sort of concentric circles that we're seeing. We have the earth, and then we have a place called Eden. And in Eden, there is a garden. And in the center of the garden, there are two trees. And we've talked about the, the, the uniqueness, the, the, the um, importance of those trees. And we, we related this, I believe, when we talked about the temple to the tabernacle. There's concentric circles. There's the common area outside of the tent. And then there's the courtyard inside the, the walls of the tabernacle. And then there's the holy place and the most holy place. As you draw nearer to the Lord, there is more and more holiness and less and less access. And so God creates this man from outside of the garden and he places him in this special place. But of course, supremely above all of that, 
the unique feature of man is that he's made in the imago Dei, the image of God. So what does it mean to be made in God's image? Much ink has been spilled on this subject. And there's a lot to say about it. Um, we live in a society, we live in an age where there are images all around us. Right? I can look out this window and I can look down the street and I can see signs going down the road with various images, whether they be advertisements or business signs or street signs. And they all are there signifying something. The sign, the image, has a meaning. It signifies to us some reality. The, the street sign with the traffic light on it shows me. It's not a traffic light, but it signifies to me. It represents something that is coming. It's a replica of the traffic sign. In your cell phone, I trust that you have many images of your loved ones. And you understand that those are not really them. But at the same time, those images are precious to us, right? They convey much about that person. And we can see a picture, especially in a, in a, a time of remembrance, maybe a special event, and our affections are stirred up, our heart is moved. We're brought back into that time period of that Christmas day or that birthday party or whatever it might be, especially those loved ones that are no longer with us, that we have this this emblem of them, this imprint of them, to remember them. It is not them, but it conveys, the image conveys a lot about them and who they are. We see this sort of idea of an image on a coin or on currency. The king would imprint his face, his image, on a coin or on currency. In our context, a president. His likeness placed on the money of the kingdom is a picture of his authority. It's a representation of him, an image of him, that points to the true reality of the king. And God has stamped his royal image upon man. We are a reflection of the divine, a reflection of the Lord. So what does it mean for man to image God? I like this short and sweet statement from Pastor Ron Miller. He says, man is a living, visible replica of God. If we think about an image or an imprint, that's what an image is. It's a replica of the real thing. And man, made in the image of God, is a living, visible replica of God, especially in his state of innocence before the fall. Now, this is a marvelous thing. I mean, if you're looking for something to stir up your heart this afternoon as you meditate on the Lord, think about the image of God. That somehow you and I are visible replicas of El Shaddai, God Almighty, on, on this earth. It's sort of hard to fathom, is it not? And so we want to flesh this out today. We're going to see four different ways that man is a living, visible replica of God. Four perspectives, not perspectives, but four, um, four sketches of the image of God. There's much to say. I've tried to summarize here. There's much more to say. But we're going to see that man images God as a reflection with his reverence, in his reign, and in his relations. Reflection, reverence, reign, relations. And so firstly, reflection. Have you ever heard this statement, you look just like your daddy? You look just like your mother. I can't believe it. Just this past week, 
because Garfield was in the hospital, his, one of his sons came here, and I had not met his son. But as soon as he walked up, I said, this is Garfield's son. <laughs> there was no doubt about it, because he's made in the likeness of his dad. Most of you know that our firstborn, Brittany Michelle, went to Connecticut a couple months ago or so. And a few weeks after that, she was gone. And I walked into the, into the living room, and I looked at my kitchen, and I said, wow. I yelled out loud. I yell sometimes. And I yelled out loud. And my wife sort of looked at me and said, what? And I said, man, you look like Brittany. I saw my daughter standing there, a profile. She was, Erica was taking a drink of water. And I saw my daughter. It was, it was, I thought for sure in that moment it was her. And then it was my wife. But if you've met Brittany Michelle, you know that she's made in the image and likeness of her mother. She looks very much like her mom. We, we reflect our parents. I always thought it was interesting that a child can sort of change over the years. They, young, they might look like mom, and they grow up, they look, look more like their dad. It's sort of fascinating. But we see this reflection in our human relationships. We, we understand uh, what that means. We actually see this, if you turn just a page over in Genesis 5, this is helpful for us to try to, we're trying to look at the biblical data and understand the image of God. Genesis 5.1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. So Adam is made in the image and likeness of God, and his son, Seth, is made in the image and likeness of his father. Adam passes down his image to his son. And let me just say here, I won't get into all the details, but the word image and the word likeness are synonymous, basically. We don't need to separate these words and parse them out. They're used interchangeably often, that we just take them as basically synonymous. But as Seth was a reflection of his father, Adam, man is a reflection of God in heaven. We are meant to mirror God in a finite way. The sum of the attributes of God are seen in man as man reflects or images his father in heaven. And so in man, in Adam, something of the power, wisdom, goodness, mercy of God could be seen and reflected and known through Adam. Another way that we might say that man reflects God is that we are uh, volitional, rational beings. That is, we can think, we can ponder, we can create, we can build God has endowed man with the faculties to engineer a, a, a 50-story high-rise building or a suspension bridge over the ocean. God has gifted man to, to paint a piece of fine art or write a, an incredible, um, intricate piece of classical music. We have this creative sense within us. We are reflecting something there of God in his creative power. Anthony Hokema, who's written a sort of modern classic on this subject of the Imago Dei, says this, When man is what he ought to be, others should be able to look at him and see something of the love, kindness, 
and goodness of God. And so man is placed on the earth to be a mirror, to be a reflector, to point to the divine. Yes, in a finite, dim sense, but nonetheless, man is God's image. Now we saw, you may remember, as we looked at the garden as a temple, we saw that Adam there was the first priest. He had a priestly task. He was to work and keep the garden. And we might read that, that he had to tend the plants, and that may be part of it. But those two Hebrew words are always paired together, speaking of the Levitical priests. And they could be translated minister and guard instead of work and keep. And the priest was to minister in the temple. He was to offer the sacrifices and and burn the incense and offer prayers. But he was also a temple guardian. He had a sword. And his, his task was to kill any person that tried to come in, an unholy invader that tried to come into God's uh, holy sanctuary. And Adam, as well, was to work and keep. He was a priest judge of that garden temple. And even we saw when Adam was exiled, the text said that the cherubim was there to keep the entrance at the, garden, at the door. To guard, actually, is the word, I believe, that's used. Now, instead of Adam... Guarding the temple from unholy invaders, the cherubim is there guarding Adam from coming back into Eden and defiling that sacred temple. Adam had a priestly task, but we see here that Adam has a prophetic task. His speech and his actions are to reflect or reveal his creator to the world. We see in man something of the divine. Man is meant to be a prophet, and Adam was a prophet to the world to reveal the will, to reveal the goodness, and to reveal the mercy of God to creation. And so man images God by reflecting God. Man also images God in reverence or worship. I need it in our word. Reverence or worship. That's what happens with alliteration. Man is a worshipful being. Amen? I I don't think that can be denied. I, I like William Downey's quote that stuck with me when I read it in his catechism, where he says, Man is inescapably religious. We could look at any society, any culture, all throughout history, and men are reaching out for the divine. They're they're grasping, trying to reach out for a God. They are bowing down to something. In old days, it may have been a a pillar of stone or a carved piece of wood. In in modern secularism, it may be something else. But all men are, are bowing before something. And we've seen that man was created for the glory of God to worship and enjoy Him forever. He is the lone creature on the earth that can grasp and delight in and communicate the infinite worth of God. Man is the only creature that can do this. And boys and girls, pop quiz, didn't didn't prepare you for this, but I think you got it. What is the second commandment? Anybody remember what the second commandment is? The first is, have no other gods before me. And the second is, you shall not create any... That's number one. The second one is 
gifts, to not make any idols, right? Any graven images, any images of God, any pictures, any likenesses of the Lord. Now, there's a lot of reasons why God would forbid this. One of them certainly is any image that we would set up to worship would immediately be a distortion of the infinite glory and worth of the true God. But have you ever thought about it from this perspective? In the Ten Commandments, God forbids man of making an image of himself because he has already placed his image in this world. He has already set up image bearers in the world. It is his people, humanity. The image of God in the world is the image of God. Man is the image of God. Listen to Dr. Beakey. He says, the true God makes living people to be his image bearers. He's given an image to this world of himself that's meant to reflect him. But instead, men often make inanimate idols to image their false gods. So God has given an image of himself in this world. It is a living being. It is the human race. But when men make their idols, they make inanimate objects of wood and stone, and other foolish things. And he goes on, Dr. Beakey goes on, to say, idolatry, making an image of any other thing, and revering it, idolatry distorts man's God-given duty to glorify and image God. Because we are called, part of this idea of worship, is that we are to become like the object we worship. Yes? We are to worship God and God alone. And as our minds and hearts and souls are set upon this God, we become more like Him. Especially now, after the fall, redeemed by Christ, we are being conformed into the image of Jesus, the right image that we should be. But in idolatry, we devolve because we become like the false God that we set our minds on. As we look to an inanimate object or a person or any other thing and revere it, we become like that thing which we behold. There's much application in our own day of, of images. If I revere or set my adoring heart on a Hollywood celebrity that leads a promiscuous life and and lives for pleasure, and I love reading about all of their affairs and all of their escapades, if I set my heart upon that picture, that image, I will begin to resemble that which I revere, that which I love. If I set my heart on the myriads of rappers out there, now there is holy hip-hop, Amen. (laughs) There is good, Christ-centered, theologically rich Christian hip-hop, but we understand that much of this music is is debased and wicked. Women are objectified. Uh, Drunkenness and drug use is celebrated. Murder is celebrated. But we see in our young people that have revered this lifestyle and this image, and they are formed into that picture. If we set our Adoration on affluent, wealthy people whose lives are all about the pursuit of material things. And we say, this is the good life. This is how I want to live. I want to, I want to go where they go and live how they live. We may never have their wealth, but we will resemble 
them in their pursuit of earthly pleasures if that's what we think is the epitome of greatness. G.K. Beale has an entire book that he's written on this subject. It's very rich. I've not read the whole thing. I've used it as a reference tool. But this is what he says. You resemble what you revere. You resemble what you revere, either for your ruin or for your restoration. You resemble what you revere, either for ruin or for restoration. Man, in his sin, is unhappy to image and to reflect his creator. And so what does he do? He makes up gods that reflect his carnal desires. And we can look past the pop culture sort of tropes, and we can go into the history of religions. And how often do we see in the Greek gods, in the Roman gods, in the Greek mythology, and all of the rest of it, we see gods that are immoral, that are wicked, that sleep around with other gods, that, that even part of the act of worship, we see cult prostitution, temple prostitution in many cultures, in society. What do we have? We have men creating images of God that are really exemplifying their carnal desires of their own hearts. But man, the image bearer, was to be a reverent, worshipful reflection of the triune God. So we should, even redeemed in Christ, having that, that image effaced by the fall, we should reflect the worth and glory of our Creator. Adam, as he was a worshipful, reverent adorer of Yahweh, it reflected God's worth, God's infinite value. So be careful what you revere. Be careful what you esteem, what you admire, what you read, who you listen to. Maybe a bit more practical for our immediate context. We live in a day with many Christian leaders. We can call them leaders. Many bloggers and YouTubers and celebrity pastors and, and self-made discernment ministries that have made their entire ministry to be built on calling out the church and exposing the church. Now, the church is not above critique. And I've critiqued the church often from this pulpit where, where we need to say there's sin here. But there are some that their entire ministry is only built upon why everyone else is wrong. And it may be a broad brush, but I think oftentimes when we see these type of leaders, these type of ministries, they are often critical, arrogant, haughty, and have a hard time acknowledging their own sin, their own weaknesses, their own shortcomings. They seem to be very slow, at least publicly, to repent when they cross the line. And as a generality, it seems that those that read, listen, and follow these often image their teacher. They're often a reflection of those. So I say, be careful what you revere. Be careful what you esteem, because you will be made in some degree into the image of that which you set your eyes upon. Man was to image God through reverent worship, that God, the reflection of the worth of Yahweh would be seen through Adam. Thirdly, man images God through his reign through his reign as a king, as he's been called to take dominion. We'll look at this subject on its own in coming weeks. But Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, 
after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God gives dominion to Adam. And we do this as well in our little tiny kingdoms. Maybe if you have in your home today mature children, or maybe at some point in your life you had in your home mature children, or maybe at some point in life all of us were that mature child, or getting there. And at times, maybe you look at your oldest and you say, you're in charge. It's your, it's your house. But what do we tell them? We say, you know what's expected. You know the rules. We grant our child, our oldest, authority to rule in our little kingdom for a time because mom and dad have to go out. But it's a delegated authority under the true authority of mom and dad. Mom and dad have the rightful, uh, rightful authority there, but they delegate it to the children. But it's understood that you will rule in accordance to the law of this house. You're an under king. You're a servant king. And this is what happens with Adam. God is the sovereign creator who has authority, rightful authority over all things. And Adam is designated as an under king, a servant king. You might read and see the language of vice king or vice regent or viceroy. Um, this is a, a, an old concept that would come from nations where there would be a powerful nation and he would give authority to another king from another place. But the vice king, the under king, ruled under the banner or the authority of this other nation. He represented his, what you doing, boy? He represented his authority. And man, Adam, is given kingship over the earth. God delegates Adam the authority to rule all of the creation. King Adam and Queen Eve are to bring creation into subjection under God. Now, no. I, like, I think it was Matthew Henry. I don't have the quote here. Matthew Henry said it this way. Man is the only creature that fears God. So God calls man to fear God, and all of the creation is to fear man as man is a representation of God on the earth. What we don't get into here, which I think needs to be maybe stated, is that Adam and Eve are here in a state of original righteousness. They are perfectly sinless. And it's not just that they've never sinned, but there's a positive sense in which all of their desires, all of their motives, all of their agenda, all of their actions, all of their thoughts are perfectly brought into conformity with the law of God. It's an incredible thing to, to ponder that day when we might be in that state, in the state of glory. But all that they do is according to the will of God. And so Adam in this state would have been a truly righteous and just king that would have ruled the earth with equity and perfect justice and holiness as he is in subjection to God and the entire creation is in subjection to him. I think it's stated very well in the text that we opened with, the call to worship. Psalm 8 in verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than 
the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Adam has been given dominion to rule creation. He is God's vice king or viceroy. And we see this in ancient times that a king would set up their image as a representation of their authority. Right, we picture Nebuchadnezzar raising up that idol, telling everyone, bow down to the idol. Now, it's, the idol is not him, but it represents him so that the people don't bow down to the idol. They're punished because they didn't bow down to the king himself. I, I have, in, when I was thinking about this, images in my mind of the, back in Iraq during the war, of the statue of Saddam Hussein being toppled down. Right? And they wanted that idol, that image, out of their, of their city. It was a picture of the authority, the cruel authority of, of this man. And a king would set up his image in the town square or wherever as a representation to his subjects of his royal authority. That's why his image was stamped on the king, is on the coin as well. I have the dominion. Uh, you are in my hands. And God has set up his royal image to represent his sovereign authority on the earth through man. As man has been given dominion. So Adam is a prophet. Adam is a priest, and Adam is a king. And we see him immediately in Genesis chapter 2 exercising this dominion. We see it in verse 19 of chapter 2. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So notice what God does. God brings creatures to Adam to see what Adam will call them. Because Adam's been delegated this authority over the creation. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And then in verse 23, the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So not only does he name the animals, but he names his wife. He names the female sex. And in Genesis 3, he will give her the name of Eve. So man images God as he exercises dominion over the creation as a representative of the king of all things. And as we get into the following weeks, we'll try to discern how the fall has impacted this charge of taking dominion. Adam failed at his task. A second Adam was necessary. So how do we consider the dominion mandate now with the need of the work of the second Adam? And fourthly, man images God through relations, through relationships. Dr. Beakey says here of Genesis 126 that God reveals himself in a personal plurality. A personal plurality. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. You see, three times there we see the plurality of God. Us, our, and our. Boys and girls, how many gods are there? One God. How many persons? Three persons, right? These are hills that we die on. Amen? We are monotheists, but we are Trinitarian monotheists. These are central to what it means to be Christian. One God in three persons. 
And so within the one God, he is a tri-personal God. That means within the one God, there is community, there is relation. We see even in their names that they're related to one another, the Father and the Son, the Son of the Father. And I don't think it's wrong then to say that this relational aspect of God, because of his tri-personal nature, is part of his essence. It is who he is to be a relational being. He has never existed in solitude on his own. It has always been the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Verse 27, we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so man and woman coming together fully image God. We might say it like this, that there is something communal about the image of God. It's seen in both sexes. Man cannot fully image God. Woman cannot fully image God. And they're called to come together and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with more image bearers. So man, in some veiled sense, man images God in his relationships, in his marriage, in his family relationships. If you just think about all of our Life, all of our life is about human relationships. The closest ones we have that we are committed together for a lifetime, the the people we live next to, the people in our church, the man at the grocery store, the the person that I see as I take my walk every, every morning. We are a relational people. God has made us this way, that we live in various types of relationships. And so when a husband sacrificially loves his wife, is patient and tender with her, in a dim sense, God's love is imaged through that relationship. When a father shows mercy and kindness to his children, in a dim sense, the mercy of God is imaged in that relationship. When a wife nurtures and loves and serves her family and and cherishes her children, the, 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 the empathy and love of God is imaged in a dim sense in that relationship. But there's a warning here, right? There's a warning here. As we think about man imaging God, as we think about us understanding God through man, we have to have a top-down approach, okay? We don't look at an earthly father and make a theology of what God the Father is like. We start from God. We look at God the Father and we learn what an earthly father ought to be like. We start from the top, and we work down. Um, Example. We don't look at a father-son relationship on the earth, that that relationship always has authority in the father and submission in the son, and impose that reality upward on God the Father and God the Son, and assume that there has always been authority and submission within the persons of the Trinity from eternity past. Yes, Jesus as a man submitted to his Father, but we don't impose a human relationship on the Godhead. They are co-equals, co-eternal. A few weeks back, kids, we had the question, who is God? Who is God? And we said that God is a... We said that God is a spirit and does not have a what? Does not have a body like men. Now, What we don't want to do is say, man is the image of God, man is body and soul, that means God has a body. This this, this question must be wrong. No, the Bible says that God is a spirit. And so we can learn something about God even through our 
body that doesn't necessitate God having arms and limbs. For instance, when God destroys his and our enemies, sometimes it says he reached out with a strong arm. When you read that text, you don't need to see a big buff arm coming out of the clouds and wiping people off the battlefield, right? But we understand what it means. We know what a strong arm winning the victory means. It means something to us. So our bodies can be a reflection of what God does, and He can communicate something of Himself in human terms without us imposing everything of what it means to be a man upon God. So man images God through reflection, reverence, reign, and relation. I want to think about now some practical applications. Puritans would call these the, the uses. How do, we, how do we use this text? How do, how do these things become practical for us? Firstly, beloved, you are the image of God. That's the answer to the question of who am I? If you've thought about that, what, what, what am I doing here? What's my purpose? Who really am I? I remember when I was in high school in the South, South California, <laughs> and you had every different person, group, trying to identify with something, the skaters, the stoners, the jocks, the, all of it, the nerds, you didn't want to be one of the nerds, right? The surfers, the, all of these kids trying to identify with something, trying to be someone, put it, wrapping yourself in a, in a uniform, if you will, trying to fit in some group. But God tells us who we are. You are the image of God. Believer and unbeliever. Yes, the falls had a great impact, but nonetheless, believer and unbeliever, made in the image of God. And I think that is a glorious truth that ought to warm our hearts beyond any other identifying that we could do with any other thing in this life. God made you in His image. The image of God is not in addition to man. It's not, it's not something that God added at later, but, he, but it says very clearly, God made man in his image. It is central to who we are. Number two, then, there's an implication there. God has ethical demands upon you because you are made in his image. You bear his divine image, and thus you've been called by God to reflect Him well. Amen? To live according to His standards, His righteousness, His rule in this world. We ought to be um, good reflections of God, if I could say it that way. We ought to mirror God well. Now, we are sinful. We understand that. But because man is made in the image of God, God lays a claim upon man of how he is to live. Another implication, I think, here that is probably obvious to most of you, human life in every form is precious to God. Human life in every single form. I love this statement from, again, Dr. Beakey. He says, over all of human life, from conception to senile old age, flies this glorious banner. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. We learn there in Genesis 9, 6, why murder is so heinous. It is because man is made in the divine image of the Lord. Human life is sacred. 
And we should be good stewards of this creation. And we should care for the environment. We should not just destroy and, and pollute to benefit ourselves. Um, animals are a blessing to us. The Bible says that, the, I'm paraphrasing here, that the man that's cruel to his beast is a wicked man, right? Um, but animals are not made in God's image. Only human beings bear the divine stamp. They all, only men reflect God. And so human life must be cherished by the Christian. And this truth here, the Imago Dei, man made in the image of God, is the foundation of our ethic on life. It must rule our view on every issue that touches the issue of life. Of course, abortion is, is low-hanging fruit. It's, we know this is a scourge on our society. But we look at the other end of life today with euthanasia, where we are deciding to put people to death because we think it's the right thing to do. We are dictating when to end a human life. I'm not talking about pulling a plug from someone that's living on machines, but actually administering suicidal medicine to, to, to take someone's life. IVF, the creating and freezing and often discarding of human embryos. We're playing God with the image of God in a, in a test tube. Birth control, that is abortive, that allows a human embryo to be created, a life to begin, a, a unique DNA signature that will never be seen again, and then that baby, as new as it might be, to be flushed out of the woman and discarded. Vaccines that are designed with cells and tissues from aborted babies, harvested intentionally, often used while they are still alive to have the most effect in medicine. That is man trying to further our own lives, reaping from the destruction of the Imago Dei. Murder and how it should be punished. Human trafficking, kidnapping, slavery. All of these practices that destroy or harm the image of God must be clearly rejected by the church. And I believe the sixth commandment demands that we not only abstain from the harming of life, but we ought to be the most staunch defenders of the preciousness of human life. And I just want to add here, if you, if you struggle with self-worth, you need to hear that your life is precious in the sight of God. If you struggle with the desire to live at times, however difficult your life may be, and God certainly knows the pain, even more than you do. He knows what you've gone through. But your life is precious in the sight of God. You have dignity and worth and value because God's royal image has been stamped upon you. Fourthly, fourthly, there is one human race. There is one human race. And thus, racism is an offense to the image of God. Now, I know this is a hot-button topic in our society, and we've pushed back maybe on the abuses of calling everything racist. But I grew up, as I said, in the South, South California, and where I grew up, I don't know how it was for you, but everybody was racist. The whites didn't like the Asians, the black hated the Mexicans, the Mexicans hated the blacks. It was just how things were. But who are we 
to look at a man who has a different color of skin or a different type of eyes or a different dialect and degrade him, made in the image and likeness of God as we are, and to hate him simply for how he looks. It's a wicked offense against the Imago Dei that we would judge a man by the color of his skin. And finally, implication number five, male and female are equal in God's sight. He made them in the image of God, male and female. Now, we live in a society that wants to tell you that God-given roles degrade the equality of man and woman. That if God gives roles in the various spheres of life, in the, in, the, in, the, in the world, civil realm, in the family, and in the church, that if we have roles of authority and submission at times, that that degrades the value of the woman. And we have to say, no. God made man and woman in the image of God, and these roles that he's given us are good. Eve is a helper to her husband. And at least, we'll say, before the fall, she didn't complain about that. Amen? It was a good work that God called her to. Now we know the curse has impacted that marriage relationship. But male and female are of equal quality before God because they both bear the divine image. Again, where we started. God created man in his royal image to be his kingly representative in this world to rule and spread the worship of Yahweh to the ends of the earth. That was the original intention. And we'll see next time the fall and the redemption of Christ restoring that image. Let's pray.